This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we talk to academic and writer Marius Henty about Henry Green's 1939 novel Party Going. The novel tells the story of a group of wealthy socialites. While on the way to a party, they are trapped in a station hotel due to fog. They never make it to the party of the title, and all of the action takes place in the hotel. It's a strange and mysterious novel which deals with the complex social interactions of socialites and workers alike. It's by turns comic, lyrical, expressive, but not necessarily easy to interpret. Henry Green was the pen name of Henry Vincent York. Born in 1905 to a Birmingham-based business family, he went on to become one of the most enigmatic writers of the modernist period. He died in 1973. Marius Henty is Professor of English Literature at the University of Gothenburg. He has previously studied and taught in universities in France, Belgium, America and the UK. His main areas of research are modernism and the avant-garde, and he has published two books, Henry Green at the Limits of Modernism and Tata Dada, the Real Life and Celestial Adventures of Tristan Tsara. He is currently researching authorship and treason at the beginning of the Cold War. You can find all the relevant links and a list of the books mentioned in the description of this episode. Here's Will Carr of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Marius Henty in February 2022. Hi, Marius. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Um, and today we're going to be talking about Henry Green's fantastic 1939 novel, Party Going, um, which is one of Burgess's favourites, obviously, included in his selection. I thought, though, it would be best if we started with a bit about you and your relationship to Henry Green's writing. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you first encountered it and what your first impressions were. Yeah, the first the first time I encountered Green, and I had read a lot, and I had read a lot, and I'd never heard his name. Um, it was during a class I took uh, that was taught by James Wood. James Wood is a former uh, literary writer at uh, The Guardian and now at The New Yorker. And he was teaching in, uh, an undergrad class at Harvard on kind of the contemporary British novel. And he had Green's Loving uh, on the syllabus. And I had never read Henry Green. I'd never heard of him. And I was totally captivated by this kind of new way of writing. Um, totally experimental. The writing was amazing, poetic, beautiful, yet very, um, it just grabbed me in a kind of way that a lot of other writing didn't do. So then I, you know, for the class, I obviously read uh, Loving and wrote a paper on Loving, but then also read through all of Green's other works. 
Um, it's also good that Green didn't write so much, right? You could sort of do that uh, <laughs> in a few weeks, right? Uh, Burgess, you can't really do that. You can't read all of his works in a few weeks. Um, so, yeah, it was absolutely so. It was fantastic, and it was a kind of thing for me. It was a it was a total eye opener to have uh, something so different, which I had not expected. Uh, That's really interesting because, well, that you were so captivated so immediately because a lot of readers find green initially quite challenging yes is that something you experienced at first or 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 perhaps not perhaps you were drawn in straight yeah there there is something obviously quite challenging about the way that he writes um i've had um uh in the kind of ma classes that i teach on on modernism sometimes i assign green's uh, living which is his second novel. It was sort of set in a Birmingham factory works and there's a lot of dialogue and everything else. And it's quite oblique and it's quite difficult to understand. And students always, yeah, they always say it's, uh, it's rather difficult to get into. The style is difficult. You know, there, there are no artists. Sometimes there are no articles. Why, why is that? What's going on here? Um, but then once the voice, once you let the voice, once you settle into the voice, and I think that's true of a lot of novels, a lot of fiction in general, once you settle into the voice, um, you can sort of get it. Uh, there is, I'm not sure that Green is more challenging than lots of other writers of his time. I'm not sure that he's more challenging than Virginia Woolf or, uh, or Joyce for that matter. Uh, but yeah, there, there might be a kind of difficulty uh, to reading him for some readers. But it's leavened by the fact that there's a lot of comedy, uh, the writing is beautiful, all of that. Yes, and I, I, I certainly felt when I was reading Party Going that I, I had that experience that uh, that initially it was quite hard to tune in, to work yeah. out what was going on, to catch the tone. But after a while, you were you were very much a part of the novel. Yeah, um, and and it's very you know kind of exciting, immersive experience. As a That's reader. right. That's right. Yeah. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about Party Going itself, which was the novel that that Burgess picks out specifically. Yeah. Um, just tell us what it's about and what, and what you can expect to find in it. Yeah, I mean, you can expect to find. I mean, it starts with a with with a dead bird plopping down, <laughs> and a kind of dead pigeon uh, picked up in a train station, and essentially, it's the story of a group of young socialites trying to get on a train to Europe, um, and the train doesn't leave, and it's the story of them just sort of gossiping, essentially. Um, I don't know. There's there's not much action in the story, right? There's a lot of there's a heavy fog over London, and there's trains that aren't running, and then there are masses of people waiting to you know take the trains home, uh, and then there are these socialites trying to you know get across to France, and there are goings on in their hotel. There's a mysterious hotel detective. There are birds fluttering about. There are you know the police might be called in because the mob might be forming. All of this, right? Um, but it's sort of a it's sort of a snapshot of a small sliver of life, I guess. Um, but it doesn't have much of a plot, right? No, I don't think these novels have much of a plot to begin with. No, it, it felt to me that a lot might happen, or was about to happen, right. or yes, there, there was the possibility of enormous drama taking place, but very little of it never That's quite right. emerged. It, it, the things that happen happen kind of out of shot off screen. Yes. Yes. Um, although the, some of the conversations between the uh, protagonists, between the socialites that you mentioned, yes. they have a, a lot of drama inherent within them. You know, they, That's right. their, yes. um, uh, the intricacies of their social relationships. I, I wondered if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about that, about how they interact. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of it's this kind of strange situation because Green, as a as a novelist, for instance, um, doesn't fill you in as to what's happening, right? So as a reader, you're sort of presented as just a kind of mute observer of dialogue. And of course, when people talk to each other, they're not going to fill each other in on what they already know, right? But if you're a person on the outside, you have to try to figure out what's going on because you haven't been clued in to, to what's happening. So I think a lot of what, what happens when you're, you're a reader of, of kind of Green's novels is trying to sort of figure out, well, what are they talking about? What are they getting on? And you become, you know, as you sort of mentioned, immersed into this kind of fictional world. And you're not given these kind of clues, what to think, how to believe, um, how to judge these individual characters, right? You sort of just observe them and you see them. Um, and of course, there are elements of, uh, you know, there are elements of social satire and what Green is doing in the novel because these socialites are, you know, yeah, I, I would say they are a bit oblivious to the world's problems, right? This is 1939. You know, at a certain point, there's this famous line from the novel, you know, what targets, what targets for a bomb, sort of about the, you know, the, the huddled masses um, outside the train station, right? So in terms of what would happen with the Blitz and everything else, um, it's sort of prescient in, in, in that kind of way. Uh, but there is some social satire about these, about these socialites. But in the end, you end up um, sympathizing with them as, as characters, as individuals, because you want to understand their story. Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you're very kind to the characters. They're presented really as being quite awful in many ways. Yeah. I think that quite... well, they are quite awful in many ways, of course, right? And, you know, we live in a world of, you know, mass income inequality and austerity and everything else. And here we have, you know, the late 1930s, we have these kind, you know, the, there's the famous, um, was it Amabel, the, the kind of celebrity who's taking a long bath and sort of, you know, just, you know, loves her kind of beauty. And, you know, uh, but at the same time, I think Green was not, um, he could be quite biting towards towards his characters. But at the same time, I think he, he wanted to, you know, every character had their own kind of humanity. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And th uh, that for me was very important, actually, that um, they, they weren't caricatures in the end. Yeah. And you ended up sympathizing with all of them, as you say, you know, to to some extent at least even if their motivations are suspect or their kind of yeah, self-knowledge is incomplete you know that's right yeah. yeah yeah they're they're vain and selfish and horrid and you wouldn't want to have a conversation with them um and you wouldn't want to be friends with them but as a reader you can sort of you know you get some knowledge about about those individuals and you withhold your judgment and i think green does that very deftly in the novel Absolutely. Um, so you, I mean, you mentioned it, it's published in 1939, you know, just yeah. just as storm clouds are building in Europe. Um, how was the novel received when it first came out? I mean, sort of muted kind of reception. I mean, Green was, Green was, a, I don't know how many, the, his first novel was published in the early, in the, in the mid 20s, when he was, when he was very young, 20 some years old. He, he wrote it when he was an undergraduate at Oxford. And then his second novel came out very quickly after that, a few years later. It was totally different, totally different in style. Um, many critics, you know, Auden loved it. Uh, Evelyn Waugh loved it, uh, Living. But then it took 10 years for his third novel to come out. So there's a kind of expectation, as it were. Um, but Green wasn't, he wasn't immersed in literary salons in the same way that other writers would be because he had a kind of day job, right? He ran a factory firm. He ran his family's firm. Um, 
uh, he came from kind of very very privileged background. All of this, right? So he didn't need to write to make um, he didn't need to make money from his writing. Um, and by the time the book came out, I think people had other things on their minds than sort of the swan song of the bright young things, which is sort of what it was sort of read as, as it were, right? You know, this is the you know just as you know, Waugh's Vile Bodies is like 1935 or something like that. Anthony Pohl's um, Bright Young Things novel is also from the early 30s. So Bright, you know, Party Going is like the tail end of it. And it seemed as if it's this kind of frivolous conversation between frivolous people and, you know, real stuff is happening now. Um, so it wasn't given a kind of very interesting reception or I, I don't think it was, it was received with any kind of fanfare. Uh, in this kind of way I see but it seems to me that there's more to it than that and it's yes. certainly a novel that's persisted I, I wonder yeah. well I, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how the reputation of the novel developed because um, I mean, Burgess yeah. was writing in the 80s and he picked that's it right. out and yeah. uh, uh, yes maybe maybe just tell us a yeah bit about I mean it. I think I think you know party going had that kind of unfortunate yeah, the you know the timing of it didn't work very well. It's 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 publication in, in in 39 and then war happens very quickly and then it's sort of quickly subsumed. Um Green developed then in World War II, um his kind of wonderful memoir, Pack My Bag, which is a wonderful book. And then he wrote a series of other novels, novel uh Loving in 1945, which in many ways is also a kind of wonderful comic masterpiece. Um but then for many years, you know, Green was at the height of his fame. 44, 45, 46, something like that. Um, but then sort of sidled off to obscurity for a long time. Um, and I would say for a long time was was relatively unread. Uh, by the time Burgess chose him, chose party going in 84, um, I think, you know, Green had sort of made some reappearance, uh, but for the most part had remained you know, considered a kind of writer's writer that very few uh, people would have heard of at that point, right? In fact, I, I've read somewhere that uh, he's considered a writer's writer's writer. A writer's <laughs> writer's writer. That's right. You know, you could, you could, you could quadruple it to, to the fourth power uh, or something like that. Uh, but in 84, I mean, there was a party going, and I think, you know, um, Frank Kermode at a certain point talked about the inscrutability of meaning in party going. Um, in his in his lectures on narrative secrecy, um, so he sort of you know brought back as it were Green into a kind of academic discussion. There were a few books about Green in the late sixties, early seventies, um, and then starting in the mid nineteen eighties, there were there were some book. There were two very important kind of academic books about Green that sort of came out. But this was this was after uh, Burgess's choice in eighty four. Uh, so. I mean, I don't, I don't think Green's reputation would have been very high in 84. I think very few people would have heard of him or remembered him. Um, he was certainly an important writer in the mid-40s, mid to late 40s. But then it sort of, it sort of died down. And, and the kind of writers that people would read from that time period, right, if you look at the, the reputation or fortunes of, of Evelyn Waugh or George Orwell, right, his kind of contemporaries, um, or Anthony Pohl, who kept writing into the seventies, right, and you know was the was the chief reviewer, you know, for 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 newsprints, and you know his name was in print every other week, right? Uh, so so Green was certainly not in that same in that same position. 
Well, he certainly seemed to be an important writer for Burgess, who who, yeah. who mentions well, he mentions living, which we touched on the yes. novel set in the factory, and loving, and in the end, Burgess picks out Party Going as his favourite, yeah. just because it speaks to his own his own experience, probably in the in yeah. the late thirties. One of the things he says about Green in general is that Green was concerned with bringing to the novel form what he describes as a close knit unity, more appropriate to poetry than to fiction. Yeah. I, th- I found that quite a luminous phrase, and I wondered what you mm. made of it. Um, yeah. Do you think that Green's novels are at all like poetry? In a way, they are. I mean, in a way, they are. There's a kind of tone to them. Um, there, there, there's a kind of way in which the care, the fastidiousness of the the way that Green uses language, it's not workaday prose that you find in Green, right? It's really carefully calibrated living speech that's found. Um, so not poetry with kind of rhetorical flourishes, romantic, whatever, but poetry in terms of a kind of living language um, that's carefully attuned to itself. I think that's certainly green. Um, so there are elements of the poetic uh, with the care with which language is used, for sure. Um, there are certainly elements of the poetic in which ambiguity or absences are allowed to flourish. It's in the ellipses, in the unsaid, uh, in the offstage, in the offscreen, um, that you have the real action, uh, which is unusual for a novel. In the novel, you know, the, the, the traditions of the novel is that everything is sort of there. There's a kind of close causality between what you read and what you see, right? And readers, you know, it's like the detective novel is a kind of good example of that, right? You know, you can't have, clues have to be in front of you and then you figure them out and then, you know, you're satisfied, but the whole story has to be there. Green didn't put the whole story into his novels. Uh, so it's like poetry in that respect as well, um, with the unstated. And I, I, well, I, I think that's exactly right. And um, just going back to the first thing you said about the poetry, the, um, the, the language of, yes. that, that Green uses is very careful. And it does seem to me that there are these moments of great lyricism and sort of yes. flights of, um, uh, flight, well, sort of linguistic ambition, sort of energy yes. about it that, uh, that suddenly it breaks out like sunlight in the middle of the fog, you know, That's in, right. in, yeah. in the middle yeah. of the novel. Um, do you think he was consciously striving for these kinds of literary effects? I think, yeah. I mean, I think he was, but at the same time, those literary effects are never forced in a way. Like, I don't think that Green ever forced the writing in a way that you could see. It's, it's not show-offy lyricism. Um, and it's not there just for itself, but it's there because it, because it really gives you something as a reader, right? I mean, there, there are great examples within the, within party going of passages that it seems extravagant in a way and it, but, but, but it works, it works for you, uh, because it's brought a kind of startling image. Um, and the narrator doesn't, it's, it's not out of character with everything else that you've read. Um, so he's able to bring those elements into the story, um, in a kind of very natural way, right? So the lyricism is not language that's distinct from everything else. It's part of living language as well, right? To try to best encapsulate an experience, a moment, a perception, a view, um, an object. Um, and so I don't think they're removed from, uh, you know, they, they do seem, sometimes they do seem uh you know, they stand out in a way because so a lot of Green's novels um, tend to be very heavy on dialogue, right? So when you have the narrator going on for a little bit longer, um, 
it's it, it's unusual in a way, but the, but the tone is always consistent. I think in many ways. Absolutely. Well, you're suddenly reminded that it's a novel and that you're reading a novel somehow. And um, yes, no, it has a really quite quite dramatic effect actually for for a reader. I think. Um, and related to the second thing you were saying um, about how Green doesn't show everything on the page. I mean, this is, this is similar to one of the things Burgess says about party going, that it, that it has no message, you know, that it doesn't have, um, and I think what he's getting, getting at there is that it, it doesn't tell you what to, what to conclude. It doesn't tell you what to think. Do you think there, there are messages in Green's work? Not, not in any kind of strong way. Right. I mean, I think, and it's part, part of it is to, to think about him in, in the context in which he's writing. So, you know, certainly for thirties fiction, long been caricatured as kind of, you know, very politicized. Uh, so you were either on the side of, you know, the good fight, right? So you were anti-fascist and, and everything else and for the revolution and all of that, or you were on a reactionary side and defending, you know, the great traditions and all of this, right? Um, so Green's fiction doesn't have those kind of messages, right? Coming across, right? Either kind of, an aesthetic proclamation or a manifesto uh, or a political message or anything else, right? Um, I think there are things we can pick up on in terms of Green being a very, very astute social commentator. Uh, so in terms of trying to dissect um, cultural mores, um, the way certain classes speak, he was very class conscious, Green. Um, so in terms of understanding kind of variations and social class and how those, you know, how those differences pan out both in speech and in certainly in speech, uh, but, but in behavior as well. Um, there's something going on there that you can use, right? I don't know if that's a message though, right? But it wasn't, there wasn't this kind of traditional, you know, he, like D.H. Lawrence message of the world, right? Uh, that you could find, or H.G. Wells, um, or even Joyce with a kind of aesthetic manifesto that, that could be a kind of message, as it were. So Green was more muted in that respect. Um, but I think there are things we can find um, that, you know, for lack of a better term, could also be messages. Um, but maybe different, maybe they're different in a way. I'm not sure. Do, do you think that um, difficulty of, of pigeonholing him, if I could put it yeah. that way. Um, do you think that's contributed to the difficulty people have found in reading him? I mean, of course, right? I mean, of course, the fact that Green doesn't fit in nicely into, let's say, a university syllabus as an example of X or Y, um, that, you know, that, that obviously makes it less likely that he'll be, you know, kind of, kind of read at university and English literature courses and uh, and then be sort of less familiar, right, uh, to common readers. Uh, yeah, the fact that he doesn't stand in for one particular thing um, has made it more difficult for him. But I think he was a very versatile writer. Um, and he certainly wrote, uh, you know, a kind of series of novels, that I think, or at least two or three novels that will stand the test of time. Uh, so, but... They don't have, you know, that one shtick that, that, that yes. makes them unique in this kind of way, right? And then when you did that one shtick of the kind of dialogue novels, the kind of later dialogue novels, those became more labored in some sense, right? And I think were less successful. Than, yes, his, his later novels are somewhat more 
austere. I, I, that was my right. feeling, feeling yes. about it. And they, they were, you know, less pleasurable in many ways. You know, cause yeah, they're the less pleasurable that, to read. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Burgess finishes up his recommendation in his 99 novel selection by comparing Green's work to music. And he also says that Green's novels are, and these are his words, as solid and glittering as gems. It feels like Burgess is, is reaching for different kinds of metaphors to describe Green's work. I, I wondered if you thought that either of these were useful ways of thinking about Green's writing. Yeah, and, and that phrase of Burgess's is very, it's very Green-like as well, right? As solid and glittering as gems, right? That, that's a kind of phrase that Green would sort of write. Um, you'd have an adjective there, though, somewhere um, before gems. But yeah. uh, like music in a way, yes. I think there's a kind of tonality. There's a structure. Um, there's a structure to the way things are introduced, right? So it's almost like like a fugue in some sense, right? There's an introduction of a theme, then there's kind of redevelopment of it. Um, you know, like poetry, there are certain words that get stressed and get developed and come up and reappear. Uh, there are certain kinds of symbolism and party going, it's the birds all the time. There are all these different kinds of birds and there's this fog and then they come in and you're trying to search for the meaning of it, right? Um, so it's almost a kind of like phrase, a musical phrase, as it were, that gets repeated um, with variations on it. And you're trying to find out the meaning of the variations. Right. And I think one of the, you know, one of the, the kind of rabbit holes that you can get into, um, at least as an academic, as an academic when reading Green, is trying to find out the meaning of that symbolism or whatever else. Right. As opposed to just letting it breathe and understanding it as a kind of aesthetic effect uh, without a definite um, kind of object, as it were, in the end, right? But as a kind of very playful way of um, of showing us different realities. Um, so I think music is a good way um, of thinking about it. Gems is the opposite way of thinking about it. So there's some confusion going on there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd say so. <laughs> but, uh, but both sort of work in a way, right? Uh, for thinking about you know, music with this element of tonality and variation, and then gems with a sense of this kind of impenetrable object that stands and that we admire um, and has a kind of hardness to it that's chiseled. Um, Because Green's writing was certainly very chiseled, worked over, um, had a kind of hardness to it. um, And it wasn't a hardness that, that put one off. Uh, because it's a hardness that's there for a purpose, right? Um, to show us how difficult language is to get it right. Um, and there's still comedy and everything else. So it's not, um, it's not language that, uh, that, that throws us off or that, uh, that, that makes us, that keeps us at a distance. Um, so yeah, I think both metaphors work in their own contradictory ways as it were yeah i think so too uh, and, and i suppose both of them point in their different ways to um to the fact that green's work does resist interpretation of that kind you know that's that, right yeah. you know a, a gem the beauty of a gem or the quality of a gem cannot be uh, articulated uh, except in terms of itself and i, I suppose um, that might be one way of of trying to uh, trying to explain what uh, what party going or green's green's work in general might um how right, it might function that's right yes um, again, t- trying to trying to pin Green down, and you mentioned yeah. earlier James Joyce and Virginia Woolf as as comparators, yeah. and and Green is sometimes considered alongside writers like that as a as a modernist. Right. Yes. Uh, in your in your own work, you in your excellent book, 
yeah. Henry Green and the limits of modernism. You, you resist that to some extent. I, I wonder, wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about that, about Green in relation to modernism and modernists. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a difficult story. I, th- I think I think as it were. I mean, Green was very conscious of the kind of experimental writers of his time. Uh, when he was starting out, he was very influenced by Kafka. Uh, he was very influenced by um, Proust. Uh, and he sort of saw that Kafka and Proust had taken the novel or kind of, you know, prose, aesthetic prose writing in different directions, uh, but it almost exhausted the possibilities of writing, as it were, right? And then certainly with Joyce, um, you know, with Joyce's Ulysses also seeming to exhaust the possibilities of the novel form, um, you know, Green sort of had a very keen feeling that, well, where do we go from here? Uh, you know, what, what can a writer do anymore? Um, so he was attuned to the writing of his time. He was very familiar with it. Um, I mean, the difficulty with seeing Green as a modernist is that, I mean, in a way it's part of it is that modernism means different things to different people. Um, and, but if we think of it in the most basic sense as, you know, simply experimental writing, uh, with experimental form. Um, an experimental content, um, then green is certainly there in a way, right? I mean, the writing is very experimental. The the form is very aesthetically worked over, all of this. Um, but he's not a modernist in the way that D.H. Lawrence would be a modernist, right? Lawrence had a kind of particular message that he wanted to barrel across. He was very transgressive in a kind of very open way. Uh, green didn't have that same kind of you know, avant-garde, manifesto-like quality to his work. Um, But, you know, in the spirit of the times, he was certainly connected, yet an outsider to it at the same time, right? So he writes, kind of living this kind of proletarian novel, right? Uh, Even though he's an aristocrat. Um, And this happens before the 30s. And then... In the late 1930s, he writes about the bright young things, yet they seem to be dead and it goes off into war. He writes these kind of war novels that, you know, focus more on the kind of psychoanalytic drama of possible childhood transgressions than than bombs. Um, So, you know, he was was particularly of his time, yet seemed to be outside of the time as well. Uh, so that's why I think there's a kind of resistance to seeing him as a modernist. But at the same time, I think he has to be read within the context of all the other writing that was around him and that he was very familiar with and that he appreciated and that he enjoyed and that he admired. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I felt that um, without knowing too much about Green's direct connections to other modernists, um, his his writing uh, was engaging with similar challenges and so yes. on about how to well how to how to write realistic novels you know what does realism yeah. mean in um, in the modern world that that sort of right. thing um but I, uh, I i suppose i also felt that the way in which one might approach a modernist text uh, by james joyce or yeah. even t.s Eliot, um yeah. virginia Woolf, those techniques aren't necessarily useful when reading no. green I felt uh, like you had to develop a whole, a whole new way of approaching approaching a text. I wondered if you felt that that was. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think there there was a way in which Green was trying to develop a kind of new vocabulary for the form of the 
for the form of the novel. And he wanted to make each novel stand alone um, and have its own challenges for readers um, and, you know, not base it on, um, you know, to not make it derivative, I suppose, right? Um, and his, some of his novels succeed in doing that. The late ones, I think, less so. I mean, they're, they're interesting in other ways, but they're more derivative of, of himself, as it were, right? You know, it's sort of like Hemingway wrote himself out, could, could out-Hemingway himself at the end of his career, right? You know, so Green could out-Green himself at the end of his right. career by, by taking his kind of style and development and tone and just making it so Green-like that, ah, you can't take it anymore, right? right. Um, whereas I think the earlier novels still have this element of ambiguity and searching for meaning and everything else that that they're more captivating for for readers in a way um but yeah there, there, there's a sense in which um you know the novels can stand alone and each they, they all try to accomplish different things party going especially let's um well let's consider party going now then because it's i mean it's been 80 years or so since since party going was written and I wondered what you felt Green's reputation was or is today and what you feel Potter Going and his other writing has to offer for contemporary readers. I mean, his reputation is still kind of mixed. I think there are more people reading him. Um, there are more academic studies about Green. Um, at the you know, the, the fact that, you know, publishers have brought out his work again and everything else means that he has, ha he has found a kind of readership uh, but it's still, I think, very niche. I still, I don't think it's very widespread. I don't think Green will ever be a kind of very, you know, will not be, you know, as popularly read as as Joyce or Beckett um, or D.H. Lawrence or whatever it is. Um, I think part of it is that because he can't be pigeonholed, it's much harder for him to be a representative of something. Um, in the, the the other thing that you know that obviously makes it um that makes him less amenable to to kind of popular consideration is you know he was an aristocrat uh he, he you know he didn't come across as a horrible aristocrat or curmudgeonly like in his novels but still right he was a man from privilege who went to Eton and Oxford um you know who's uh you know who ended his life uh an alcoholic uh okay um, but, you know, his life story or the kind of identity politics that he represents is not particularly interesting for anybody. Uh, so that doesn't, you know, I think help his cause either. Um, but his novels, because they offer these kind of aesthetic delights for, for readers who get into them, uh, I think he'll always have readers. I think he'll always, you know, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, you know, people will always find something there, um, when, when they start reading his works. Um, and hopefully he'll come to be considered more and more a kind of important British writer uh, of the mid-century. Um, you know, somebody whose work is straddling between the modernist period and what happens after the war, um, a kind of sedgeway, as it were, between the two. Uh, but, you know, I don't think any, any writer at the end of their career says, Oh yes, I'd like to be that transitional figure between two <laughs> modes of, between two modes of thought. Right. But, um, but you know, there are things within green that, you know, maintain uh, a kind of timelessness. I mean, the comedy of, I mean, the comedy of manners um, 
you know, uh, that'll always be read. Uh, and Green was very good at that. Uh, so I think you'll always have readers because of that. As you say, the, the novels in themselves offer great pleasure yes. to the reader. Um, you know, moments of great humor, yeah. as you say, and great beauty, and um, yeah, and great enjoyment. Yeah, so whatever we might think about Green's overall reputation the uh, novels in themselves particularly party going i think but uh, yeah. the other the other early ones too um they uh, they're just hugely enjoyable they're usually enjoyable but you know but, but but at the same time they're 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 enjoyable but still difficult for readers so that's that's the you know that's the the sort of downside to it right like you don't um you can get laughs out of them, but it, but it takes some time to understand what's going on. It's right? hard one, yes. It's, it's still hard. hard. It's hard one laughter, <laughs> right? I mean, I remember, you know, like when you read, when you start reading Party Going, you just have these names and you have no clue who anybody is. And it takes you, it takes you literal work. You have to write down the names on a sheet of paper, right? To try to figure out and then try to make little diagrams for yourself. Okay, so so-and-so, like, you know, I mean, it's not, it, it's essentially a kind of sober. It's like it's like watching neighbors, but but not really, uh, because you have you have no you have no you have no clues to understanding these characters. It takes well, yes, yeah, so coming in halfway through with the sound yeah. turned off, you know. That's right, with the sound turned off, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And and I'm not that. That's the kind of work which, and there's a kind of immense pleasure from reading it, but again, it's a kind of work which is hard. And I, you know, in the future, who knows how many. You know how many readers are going to be willing to put in the time uh, for something like that, uh, but because Green is unique in many ways, um, he'll also, you know, hopefully, will still have readers in the future because of that. Well, Green's work is still very much available, and and I think still still finding finding his audience. Um, Burgess picked ninety nine novels in his selection, of course. So we're asking everyone this. I wondered if you could add a hundredth novel. To Burgess's list, what what would it be? A hundredth novel. Yes, this is this is hard to it's hard to think about. I don't know. I, I you know ninety nine is is a wonderful number. If you go to one hundred, it just becomes becomes too definitive, right? I think I think it's that, right? Um, I don't know. Did did Burgess have any any Thomas Bernhardt in his uh, in his list of ninety nine novels? I don't think he did. I, I think Burgess was um, Burgess's selection is novels in English or originally published in English. Well, tell us about Thomas Bernhardt, which... Um... Well, Thomas Bernhardt is, is this kind of writer that I absolutely love. And he's an Austrian writer, kind of post-war, started writing in the 60s and 70s. Um, incredible comic spirit, incredible sense of language and timing. Um, totally insane writing, uh, but so formalized. Uh, like Green, very musical, right? What Burgess said about Green. Um, so there's a great novel by Bernhardt about... Um, about the um, uh, about about a pianist and trying to be this uh, this kind of great pianist. Um, they're novels about failure. Um, they're comic. Um, they have a lot of invective in them. Uh, they're they're both mean spirited but kind hearted. Um, so they're wonderful texts. I don't know. I mean, I think Thomas Bernhardt is the kind of writer that uh, Burgess probably would have loved. I don't know how much you would have read him because I don't know how much Bernhardt was, you know, was being translated in the late seventies, early eighties. Not very much. Um, it's maybe in the last 10, 20 years that that more has become available. Um, I think I think Burgess would have been fascinated by, by yeah. Bernhardt, and that's an that's an excellent uh, suggestion. And Marius, could you settle on a single Thomas Bernhardt title? 
Um, correction is great. It's kind of tale of gradual descent into, into madness and trying to figure things out. Um, and the one about, uh, I think, I think correction, that, that, that's what I would choose. Thanks very much, Marius. Well, thank you very um, much. I had uh, a wonderful time. Really interesting discussion about green. Um, we're really grateful for you taking part. Thanks, yes, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Marius Henty's book, Henry Green at the Limits of Modernism, is available now from Sussex Academic Press. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor, performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you'd like to join the conversation and suggest your 100th book to add to Burgess's list, you can use the hashtag 99novels on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.